Welcome to the 64th A.W. Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series, entitled Restoration as Event and Idea, Art in Europe, 1814 to 1820, art historian Thomas Crowe will consider the period following the fall of Napoleon. During this time, artists throughout Europe were left uncertain and adrift, with old certainties and boundaries dissolved. How did they then set new courses for themselves? Professor Crowe's lectures answer that question by offering both the wide view of art centres across the continent, Rome, Paris, London, Madrid, Brussels, and a close-up focus on individual actors, Francisco Goya, Jacques-Louis David, Antonio Canova, Sir Thomas Lawrence, Jean-Auguste Dominique Ingres, and Théodore Géricault. Whether directly or indirectly, these artists were linked in a new international network with changed artistic priorities and new creative possibilities emerging from the wreckage of the old. In this sixth lecture, entitled Redemption in Rome and Paris, 1818-1820, to Ingres revives the chivalric, while Jericho recovers the dispossessed. Originally delivered at the National Gallery of Art, on April 26, 2015, Professor Crowe extols Ang and Jericho's achievement in reconciling the immensity of inherited pain and loss in post-Napoleonic France with the established discipline of painting on monumental canvas. Well, it was two lectures ago that we examined the events behind Thomas Lawrence creating his two Vatican portraits one of Pope Pius VII, the other of his Secretary of State and the effective ruler of Restoration Rome, the Cardinal Consalvi. But one fact that remained unspoken in Lawrence's correspondence on the subject was just how perishingly hot it was as he worked on them in that summer of 1819. That fact comes to the fore in the letters of the much younger François-Joseph Naves, the Belgian pupil of Jacques-Louis David, who figured so importantly in the last lecture. In August of 1819, he wrote to his patron, the scientist Donata Omptin, that he found himself on fire in more than one sense of the word. He had given himself over to his painting with such intensity that he, quote, barely took the time to eat. And the heat of inspiration for him was accompanied by, quote, the excessive heat we have endured for two months, not a drop of rain for four and a half months. Everyone Naves knew had fled the city, fearing contagion as much as seeking cooler mountain retreats. But he, he, Naves, soldiered on, assuring uh, his correspondent, a professor of pharmacology, you may recall, that he owed his stamina to the excellent dietary regimen he was following, perhaps on his patron's advice. Quote, I eat very little, but only good roast meat when I do. Very little water, but two and a half bottles of wine per day. <laughs> so Naves directed a large part of the energies fueled by this routine into a series of paintings and studies for those paintings devoted to the theme of Hagar and Ishmael from the book of Genesis. The story of the Egyptian servant in Abraham's household who bore the patriarch's first son. After Abraham's previously childless wife, Sarah, conceived Isaac, tensions built to the point where Hagar and Ishmael were expelled from the family into the neighboring desert with no more than a single bottle of water. The drought and the heat of that Roman summer, we might surmise, deepened Naves's empathy and identification with the subject of Hagar in the desert. 
in this half-length oil-on-canvas version of 1818, regrettably, uh, I only have a black and white uh, reproduction of it, Navez shows us the spout of the clay canteen almost out of view in the lower right of the stately pyramid that he's made from the mother and son. The Netherlandish ambassador who was responsible for the young painter's stipend brought his whole family to Navez's studio in October where they saw and praised this compact version of the theme. Despite this accolade, Navez refused the ambassador's offer to acquire the canvas, fearing on some grounds adverse commentary from the artists who frequented the Netherlandish embassy. Instead, he proposed the full-length version that counts as one of the consummate, if least remarked upon, artistic statements of the period. Now, it was the Germans going in and out of the Netherlandish legation whose opinion Navez most dreaded, which makes a good cue for me to acknowledge the self-conscious brotherhood of German-speaking artists who had become a fixture in Rome over the previous decade. They had called themselves the Lucasbund, after the patron saint of the uh, artists, but became generally known on account of their ostentatious piety and primitivizing aesthetic doctrines as the Nazarenes. Just in advance of Navez uh, arriving in Rome, the group had achieved a certain triumph by their revival of true fresco. Using this medium to embellish the villa of Prussia's consul general, a Jewish convert to Christianity named Jacob Salomon Bartholdi. They chose an Old Testament theme, as you see, the life of Joseph, and completed in 1816, here is Peter Cornelius's interpretation of Joseph recognized by his brothers, replete with the overlapping planes and clarity of contour local color, all self-consciously derived from quattrocento prototypes. Though the presence of the Nazarenes well predated the restoration of Pius VII and Consalvi, they acquired fresh prominence in its wake. Protestant members and followers of the group responded to the new spectacle of the church orchestrated by Consalvi by converting to Catholicism en masse. This caused a good deal of difficulty with a number of families back home. Consalvi supported their reliably devotional output as part of his general campaign to promote Roman contemporary art, in part to forestall the export of antiquities. The Bartholdi Palace lay on the brow of the Pynchon Hill, which is to say fully within the urban renovations around the Piazza del Popolo, the most concentrated such effort undertaken by the Cardinal's administration. When the sculptor Antonio Canova took charge of fashioning the Vatican's new Museo Chiaramonti, that is honoring the Pope's family name, he included Nazarene Philip Veit among the, uh, the Italian painters assigned to decorate its lunettes. Here is Veit's contribution, the triumph of religion, naturally, the Pope's name prominently inscribed. But none of this counted for much in the eyes of Naves. The Germans here, he wrote to Omtine, loved to call attention to themselves. They affect to dress themselves in the manner of Raphael. They wear velvet toques, a belt with a sword, a plume in their crowns. They seek out the most Gothic pictures and declare that Raphael ruined painting. They are here universal objects of ridicule. And what I'm showing you is a sheet of the combined self-portraits by Cornelius and Friedrich Overbeck, a sort of bonding exercise in which they uh, liked to indulge. 
Now, Naves, in this passage I read you, puts his finger on the unresolved ambivalence of the German group towards Raphael. They dressed like him, but also denounced him out of pious determination to peel away the worldly sensuality of the high Renaissance. Now, it's, it's a commonplace uh, these days to credit an influence of the Nazarenes in any art of the period that has a strongly linear or planar character, particularly if the subject is a religious one. Can we surmise then that Naves feared their judgment uh, out of respect for their priority and their abilities, which he covers by disdain for these mannerisms? Well, my judgment would be no. First of all, he would have been highly conscious of the mode that he and David had forged together in Brussels, which was, of course, one of our main subjects last week with its emphasis on strongly delineated figures arranged across a surface more than they are inserted into illusory depth. If one places his earlier Hagar next to David's almost exactly contemporaneous anger of Achilles with its tearful countenance of Clytemnestra, the continuity between these two aggrieved mothers is patent. Even more so, I think, in the full-length version, the one he went on to paint following his promise to the Netherlandish ambassador. If he declined to be represented by the half-length Hagar, it would not have represented, it represented any impertinent questioning of the ambassador's opinion. It could only have arisen out of a desire to match the monumentality of the Bartholdi frescoes with a definitive lesson in both Franco-Belgian artistic acumen and freedom from externally imposed dogma. Naves's definitive canvas, seven feet high, with generous space around a principal figure who is scaled somewhat over life-size, possessed all the imposing presence required as a reply to Nazarene historicizing piety. The extra vertical scope allows the figure of Ishmael to exhibit all the mortal suffering and physical breakdown implicit in the verses from Genesis. In this respect, Naves intensifies the parallelism with the anticipation in the anger of Achilles of the sacrifice of Iphigenia to come. The earlier Hebraic exoticism of her headdress is now muted, and Hagar's face comes even closer to that of David's Clytemnestra. Prefiguring the intended sacrifice and divine rescue of his half-brother Isaac, the life or death of Ishmael and his lolling, gray-faced suspension hangs in the balance. His virtual integration into the upright body of his mother draws a line between this moment and her later separating herself from the dying boy, placing him under a bush and moving away so as not to witness his expected death. Even less anticipated here is the arrival of the angel, who will, in scripture, but not in this version of the story, miraculously conjure a well into existence before their eyes. What the, what the viewer is offered in its place is a full view of the empty water container, again at the lower right. Far from any hopeful sermon, this stark silhouette, its integration with the desolate horizon, stamp this Hagar in the desert with a morbidity redeemed only by the dignity of the mother. As such, it belongs fully in the register of tragedy as opposed to devotional uplift. Now, Neves reported in another letter back to Brussels, that the manner of J.A.D. Angre, 
whom we've not seen much of since the very first lecture, was, quote, esteemed by so few people that I would die of hunger if ever I were to try it myself. It can be appreciated only by a small number of artists who possess some degree of refinement and sensibility above the vulgar. Just how apart Angra seemed from the international community of somewhat younger artists in Rome might be gauged by this self-presentation in an astonishing self-portrait of 1812, representing himself in contrast to Nazarene group solidarity, working in diminutive solitary isolation on a vast classical subject plan for Napoleon's occupation of the Quirinal Palace. And his studio lay inside a church, in particular Santa Trinita dei Monti, which adjoined the French Academy's hillside quarters in the Medici Villa. Fallen into disrepair and unused, the church was then offering an early 19th century version of artists' loft space. Though Napoleon never in fact made the projected visit, uh, such a major commission for Anger was both rare and exceedingly welcome in that he had been forced by circumstances to patch together a Roman livelihood from whatever artistic opportunities came his way. He'd lived comfortably enough on the testimony of this uh, extraordinarily detailed and sympathetic domestic portrait by the young Grand Prix winner, Jean Allot. Madame Angre in the foreground, her husband seated with his famous violin in the room that served as combined studio and showroom for the private clients on whom he depended. Jericho, during his 1817 stay in Rome, had visited Angra in these rooms, but committed a social error by taking a much greater interest in the drawings at the expense of the paintings. Well, despite this relative isolation, about which Angra spoke with wounded feeling until the end of his life, he presented himself in 1818 as a self-appointed spokesman for French sustenance of Italian culture. Though he wasn't the first artist to represent this scene, for him to paint Leonardo dying in the arms of the Valois monarch Francois I, a tale told in Vasari's Lies of the Artist, this carried patent significance at the particular historical juncture we're now discussing. One of France's greatest kings had made a low-born Italian artist his equal and friend. So France now lent its magnanim magnanimous support for the arts in order to restore the pinnacle of the Roman landscape. The pale ghost of Leonardo, as you see, barely makes an impression within the sumptuous array of courtly fabrics and heraldic tailoring that spreads itself across the relief-like tableau. The robes and profile of the cardinal on the extreme right seem cut from the Trecento of Dante more than the classicizing sculptural idiom of the High Renaissance. The theme had drawn to Angler perhaps the most influential patron he could have hoped for. The Comte de Blacas, French ambassador to the Holy See, B-L-A-C-A-S. And it was the initiative of Blacas that drew Angra back to Santa Trinita, the church having become a diplomatic focus of French benevolence and contrition for Napoleonic high-handedness. The ambassador, as a gesture of goodwill, undertook to support the restoration of the church from his own money, and to this end began to commission works of art to adorn the refurbished interior. And there had to have been a great new sense of pride and anger on being commissioned in February 1817 to paint the church's high altarpiece the vote of confidence that promised to remove him from professional isolation. 
The theme, in obvious tribute to the office of Pope Pius VII, was Christ giving the keys to St. Peter. Angra cast his altarpiece directly from Raphael, specifically the 1516 tapestry cartoon depicting the charge to St. Peter, that moment in the Gospel of Matthew where Simon, alone among the disciples, is able to name Christ as the son of the living God, rather than a reincarnated prophet of earlier times. Christ renames him Peter for the rock on which his church will stand, evoking in words, but actually not producing, the keys that will bind both on earth and in heaven. In light of its elevated patronage and destination, Angra's Christ giving the keys to St. Peter can be grouped with other embellishments of Consalvi's New Rome, a shared endeavor of the victorious European powers, even and conspicuously Protestant England. Did Angra share the concern of Naves, lest priority in religious subjects be claimed by the Germans over French-speaking artists? It isn't difficult to see why many have discerned a debt in Angra's work to the frontal linear simplifications already normative in Nazarene painting. But I think it can also be too easy to fall into the logical trap of asserting a dependency between two works when a shared point of departure is what's actually in evidence. Place Christ giving the keys next to a comparable contribution by the acknowledged Nazarene leader, Friedrich Overbeck, Easter morning of 1818, which depicts the moment when the risen Christ encounters Mary Magdalene, instructing her not to touch him. In this case, the common origin lies plainly in the example of Raphael. But the next question to ask is, which Raphael? Overbeck offers his homage to the young Raphael, who retained the delicacy and sweetness perceived in his provincial teacher, Perugino. Angra takes his template from the mature Raphael, artistic mainstay of Pope Leo X. That is, in Nazarene sentiment, the wrong Raphael, the worldly later master who had ruined painting. So there's a strong sense in which Angra is adopting a mode of religious art consciously opposed to that of the German artists. With the return of royal legitimacy as the European norm, there can be no surprise that the painting of Christian subjects would regain special importance. Authority again rested nowhere more than in France on divine sanction of the throne. But that commonplace observation takes no account of the salient differences among the religious works of art in this restoration moment. When Angla's Christ giving the keys to St. Peter has been singled out for attention, it has typically been as a symptom of inauthenticity, of belief reduced to unconvincing ideology as evident in the painting's putatively stilted awkwardness, its reduction of figures to pattern and piling up of faces and draperies. Susan Siegfried, as part of her masterful exegesis of the painting in scriptural terms, to which I have been much indebted, notes the prevalence of, I quote, a modernist interpretation that would see formal disjunctions and discontinuities of this kind as symptoms of a larger breakdown of social coherence, of religious beliefs, of linguistic imperatives, or artistic traditions, signs of breakdown or a falling away, end quote. Well, it's certainly true that Anger was brutal in his adaptation of his model in Raphael that strange-looking apostle in profile cut off by the right-hand edge. 
attest to the abrupt, almost violent transformation he's made of his principal source. As he had been asked for a vertical altarpiece, some serious reconfiguring of the model was, of course, required. The burden of the work would then be to turn that necessity to account. In moving from a horizontal orientation, which emphasizes dialogue across the human company of the uh, apostles, Angler deploys the new vertical format in order to shift the conceptual meaning of the work towards a firm hierarchy from low to high. You can see that Raphael's Christ does not touch the keys clutched in Simon Peter's hands, and with his other also points earthward toward the grazing sheep, emphasizing with, a, you know, with an unabashed literalness the pastoral responsibilities of priesthood in this world. Angler's Christ, by contrast, coordinates his gestures so as to establish three distinct levels of existence and subordination from high to low. Firmly taking his position between heaven and earth, this Christ as hieratic pantocrator signals with his exaggeratedly upward gaze his unearthly bond with ultimate heavenly lordship over the crouching mortal supplicant his visible extended foot in the lower right corner, a sign of splayed near prostration. Contact with the keys as sign of office seals Angla's essentially feudal conception of Christ's lordship and the status of the church. Peter is less bestowed with divine authority than he accepts his place and obligations as the vassal of Christ. Mapped onto this set of coordinates, the apparent oddities of the composition don't signal the hollowing out of belief so much as it's conforming to another otherwise unseen order that Angla is vassal to Raphael. He had painted, as we've seen, another lordly artistic figure, Leonardo, embedded in the velvets and silks of an archaizing neo-Burgundian manner, which evokes by color and style the great late flowering of chivalry. So what might appear as Anglo's stylistic mobility or eclecticism acquires consistently by the parallel affirmations of feudal order that both works represent. Each properly treated according to the decorum of its genre and occasion. Angler's affirmation of feudalism is one in which emblems and heraldry, that is works of art and artifice, constitute that order as much as the princes, nobles, and knights who bear them. His preoccupation with chronicles of French history led him in 1814, at the time of Napoleon's abdication, to a legend from the reign of Henri IV, which he repeated at this later junction of 1819. The Spanish ambassador, envoy of an adversary, is said to have encountered a page bearing the sword of the French monarch walking through the palace of the Louvre. This Don Pedro of Toledo is reported to have been so moved, despite the conspicuous fleur-de-lis on the velvet cushion, that he knelt to kiss it. The ambassador's tribute, as Angle grasped with approbation, is to a thing or a symbol rather than a person, celebrating a quasi-mystical system of rank and power that united the otherwise antagonistic Bourbon and Habsburg dynasties. Much as past and future antagonists among European rulers had set differences aside in order to defeat a French upstart who could claim no noble ancestry. 
As if to seal this pact with a resurrected feudal order, Angler paints also for Blaca in 1819 a virtual manifesto of chivalric romance as a contemporary theme. The northern Italian poet Ludovico Ariosto first published his epic of chivalry, the Orlando Furioso, in 1516, which is starting to be a very salient date. It was thus an artifact, much as Raphael's tapestry cartoons of the sort of high of the high Renaissance. Though the tale is laid in the time of Charlemagne, Ariosto's paladins maneuver against invading armies of Africans and Saracens while contending with one another over the affection of the Asian princess Angelica, among countless other intrigues. Already at the time of its writing in the early 16th century, this vernacular epic looked back on a feudal past long superseded by modern trade, by urbanism, modern armaments, but somehow making all the more necessary perpetuation in the imagination of the existing orders of rank and rule. The poet acknowledged this belatedness and the wit and playful exaggeration with which he recounted the magical events of his epic, a pleasing play of irony that permitted a sophisticated readership to identify with its fantastic personages and outlandish storylines. Well, if Ariosto was already so belated, what's a little more belatedness? 300 years later, Angla discerns a parallel opportunity to act similarly on behalf of the restoration elite. Roger's path leads from Africa, a Saracen lineage, and the tutelage of a sorcerer to eventual Christian conversion and marriage to the warrior princess Bradamante. Along the way, he replicates the feats of Perseus and St. George, rescuing Angelica from the misadventure you see here by slaying the water-dwelling orc from the back of an enchanted flying hippogriff. And Angra was no more blind to the whiff of absurdity in this epic than had been its author. Indeed, he plays it up by extending the length of Roger's lance, diminishing the orc to dog-like proportions, and reducing the formidable Angelica to melodramatically languishing victimhood. These aspects are accessory to his chief concern, that is, to construct a picture in a fully heraldic mode his knight more an accumulation of applique devices of gilded armor, shield embroidered silk with claws, jaws, and feathers of rampant beasts flattened uh, as on a coat of arms. The predictable ridicule that such work attracted from the critics in Paris, who jeered at Angra's gothicizing archaisms, could not deter him from his mission. Now, Angler may have struck his contemporaries as a loner, as Naves's letter makes so plain, even an eccentric loner. But his attraction to feudal themes across the boundaries of conventional categories of subject matter put him in the artistic, if not the social company, of Thomas Lawrence whose contemporary portraits, ultimately to be installed in the Waterloo Chamber at Windsor Castle, arrayed the triumphant nobility of Europe across a field of discrete emblems. And there are some familiar canvases here. The Tsar Alexander I, which we've looked at. Uh, the Pope is right there. The Archduke Charles of Austria is there. These you know, occupied some of our attention in lecture four. Each one carried the subject's livery, his uniform and decorations as distinctive heraldry signs of their wearer's place in a system. There is no center, no dominant human authority separate from the positioning of these separate insignia-laden locations in a glittering constellation. 
such that this ultimate statement of restoration legitimacy functions as an allegory composed from discrete emblems, none of which singly can sum up the whole. Even the tokens of restored Rome that adorn Lawrence's portraits of Pius VII and the Cardinal Consalvi resolve themselves beyond their meaning as personally honorific attributes as sign of position in this feudal zodiac. And I'll seize the opportunity here to correct a misapprehension from lecture four. The architecture behind Consalvi being an oddly foreshortened rendering of Carlo Maderno's main facade of the Papal Basilica, balancing Raffaele Stern's Braccio Nuovo, which we see behind the Pope. While Angle was something of an idiosyncratic author of his own expression of this feudal order, Lawrence, of course, had it provided for him, courtesy of his patron, the Prince Regent of Britain. With the knighthood he had received in order to speed him on his way, he assumed a minor position in the system that he was charged with rendering in visual form. He had no further need for supplication. The Comte de Blacas was for him a social acquaintance, not a distant fount of precious patronage. And we don't hear Lawrence complaining about the heat wave of 1819 because he had ways to compensate, unavailable to Naves or to Angra. In late May, he describes in a letter to Joseph Farrington the end of an exciting day and evening of amusements. I've turned to it before. As luck would have it, Turner recorded the scene evoked by his compatriot in that same year of 1819. Angra went on to say, quote, the night coming on was singular beauty. I went with Prince Metternich and his daughter in their chariot to the Colosseum. The moon was in her fullest splendor, the air as soft and balmy as Shakespeare's, and he quotes, like the sweet south that breathes upon a bank of violets, stealing and giving odor, end quote. The seeming ease of Lawrence's painting technique, along with a manner to charm a prince and princess, made him perhaps the only artist in Europe with the gifts to bring this off. That is, to create a romance of the code itself as the ultimate ground of legitimacy. In discussions of the Congress of Vienna and the other diplomatic summits that came after Napoleon's downfall, the pageantry, balls, fashion, carriages, and romantic intrigues that enthralled thronging spectators are typically regarded as frivolous distractions from the main matters at hand. But the accumulated reinforcement of the feudal code inherited uh, from, you know, from the, the, the past, the past now to be brought back into existence, all of that was just as important as any carving up of territory might have been. Angra and Lawrence, from their respective outsider and insider positions, grasped this imperative and fashioned what can be counted as the consummate art of restoration. But there's an ultimate artwork of the restoration in a distinctly different sense. And these lectures cannot end without addressing it and without bringing Jellicoe back on stage. The place to begin would be a canvas he fashioned just before his journey to Rome in 1816. Its title is The Deluge, as the type belongs to a recent lineage of such subjects that suspend themselves between mythic floods and generic scenes of disaster and moral distress, all of them tracing their lineage as far back as Nicolas Poussin's venerated winter of 1660. What distinguishes Jellicoe's medium-sized and more loosely painted picture is the fact that it had recently been a different painting altogether. 
Underneath the murk of swampy greens, grays, and browns is a copy of the vibrantly colored Battle of the Pyramids by Antoine Jean Gros. This is an image of the 1810 original because I can't show you Shelley Coe's copy because it is underneath the deluge. There could hardly be a, a more dramatic act of effacing past Napoleonic glory, <laughs> leaving no hopeful prospects for the future, only morbid discards and remnants. What remains in Jellicoe's drowned world, an almost submerged horse and rider trying in vain to save his family, harks directly back to the great cavalry subjects of 1812 and 1814, while in the lower left, his only survivors cling to the planks of a raft, just under their feet here, striking jagged rocks, dwarfed and adrift in the immensity of devastation. Made on the eve of his year-long Roman sojourn, as best we can tell, this exercise anticipates the torrent of inspired fragments of a possible art that we've already followed in this phase of his life in the third lecture. A persuasive translation of these fragments into painted form had largely eluded him. But he began, once he had reestablished himself in a Paris studio, taking deliveries of great lengths of canvas. His goal, prompted by no known commission or destination, was a monumental series of three landscapes. Keyed to the traditional rubric of the times of day, morning, noon, and evening, but absent night, the paintings nonetheless reject any trace of the pastoral delectation, customary, and such exercises. Their gigantic size, some eight feet in height, already confound the domestic connotations of the genre. The world they create can best be characterized as the stilled, morbidly elegiac aftermath of the great deluge he had spread over the Battle of the Pyramids. As the floodwaters drain away, left behind is the muck, the wreckage, the cholera of a ruined, depopulated world viewed in sickly green light, even at midday. Scattered survivors cling to life. Here, at this bleak noontime, the broken bridge forces a desperate family of means to plead with an indifferent boatman for passage to some hoped-for refuge. Now, there are two senses in which these canvases of 1818 look back two years to 1816 and the season of Jericho's departure for Rome, both being instances of the natural world confounding human endeavor. The immeasurably larger but much lesser known event struck Europe and North America in 1816, christening it the year without a summer. Storms, floods, and frigid weather, crop failures, food shortages, civil unrest, and epidemic disease followed. This changed climate endured for two more years, that is, up to the point when Jericho embarked on his times of day. What he could not have known, nor was the science of the time equipped to explain, was that all of these baleful events stemmed from the volcanic eruption of Mount Tambora in the Indonesian archipelago on the 5th of April, 1815. After a year, the high-altitude ash carried north and west, sufficiently reducing solar radiation so as to generate this litany of meteorological and human disasters. With no cause uh, apparent for such drastically changed climate, metaphysical explanations filled the vacuum. Here in Jellicoe's hands, evocation of a passage to Hades. And there would have been every temptation to link these accursed conditions with the restoration itself. 
In the foreground of evening, beggary still dominates, and stripped men in homage to Michelangelo clamor from the stream, but leaves are sprouting and warmer light has begun to break through. Some larger allegories surely lay behind Jericho's first undertaking of any large-scale painting in four whole years. The time and energy that he poured into these monumental canvases thus superseded his eventual turning to the other catastrophe that had been in the news during the non-summer of 1816. His deluge of that year had included in the bare life that remains after storm and flood a ramshackle raft with clinging castaways as an emblem of vain, dashed hope. During his preparations for the journey to Rome, was he already aware of the foundering of the French frigate Medusa on its voyage to Senegal, which occurred on July 2nd? 1816. Of the 400 on board, only 250 had been accommodated in the ship's lifeboats. The rest were loaded onto a makeshift raft, lashed together from planks, spars, and lines taken from the wreckage. As this 1817 specifies in its caption, 150 Frenchmen had been placed on this machine. Only 15 were saved 13 days later, and there were women as well. The discovery of the bare complement of survivors by the rescue ship Argus followed episodes, mutiny, madness, murder, and cannibalism that touched on the horrific extremes of human depravity and pain. By September 13th, already a coruscating report by the surviving engineer on board, Alexandre Coriard, had been leaked to the opposition press. But Jellicoe was then days away from embarking on his Italian journey, and no inkling of interest or knowledge of the Medusa survivors ordeal is evident before he undertakes a vast new canvas on the theme in 1818 only commencing in earnest after completing his dystopic times of day landscapes. Now, did the one project follow from the other? The horrific story of the raft's occupants has become one of the inescapable narratives of modern art history. So familiar, I don't think it really requires further rehearsal from me in these waning moments of these lectures. For our purposes, its central significance would seem to lie in its status as the quintessential allegory of the Restoration. The incompetent admiral responsible for the frigate running aground was an aristocrat recently returned to France in the retinue of Louis XVIII. Appointed to this command as talented and experienced officers who were tainted by Bonapartism were shunted aside. It required next to no metaphorical imagination to view the flagship Medusa as the ship of state adrift and in peril. Indeed, it had, in a very real sense, been a ship of state, carrying the new governor of Senegal, which was a colony awarded France at the Congress of Vienna, along with much of the personnel and infrastructure of his rule. And the abolitionist Coriard well knew that one surreptitious mission on the part of the new governor was to restart the slave trade. By 1817, a hasty court-martial of the admiral had put the scandal officially to rest. But Coriard, with the expedition surgeon Savigny, published a book describing and documenting their ordeal in order to keep alive awareness of its political causes and ramifications. Jellico took much of his material from this source, which included, as you see, that precise plan of the raft as its frontispiece, and can be counted then as part of this collective effort. He sought out uh, Coriard and Savigny for firsthand elaboration, painted their portraits, as he began studies for the project, he 
drew one distressed nude male with a military mustache directly on the back of one page from their book. You can see the type bleeding through from the other side. Angelico's identification with his subjects cut deeply as these two drawn self-portraits in sailor's headgear attest, which conjoin a, a cognate male model in a death-like, almost decapitated state in the upper left. And for Jericho then, an arduous single-handed passage ensued via study after study of the circles of hell traversed by the raft survivors, extending his researches as is notoriously well known to haunting the morgue for direct apprehension of death and decay. So there would have been several strands in play as Jellico felt his way to their resolution, which reached back into previous lectures, I think, in a rather deep way. The deluge, painted in 1816, as I said just prior to his Italian journey, establishes the theme of overwhelming disaster and terrifying fates of its survivors. In the time of day landscapes of 1818, he builds his theme and up and out into a world smothered with despair, punctuated here and there by vestigial human vignettes and some glimpse of redemption in the light. He found next to no room in these canvases, excepting perhaps the nude swimmers in evening, for the visceral dramas of violently entwined bodies, human and animal, that had fueled his most remarkable works in Rome. These had remained largely as studies and sketches resistant to enlargement and synthesis uh, on any public scale of paint on canvas. Jellicoe drew and brushed this study of a naked prostrate figure, which remains in the composition until the end, on a sheet that already included a small Italian vignette of a seated herdsman, you see down in the bottom as I turn the sheet over with other pastoral elements. The raft reaches back into the body of Roman work in a way that makes the most sense, I think, of the trajectory that we have been following through the lectures as a whole. A forcefully muscular victim study recalls the central Roman figure in the bull tamer. While this full compositional study of the raft adrift resumes in medium and format that remarkable interplay of motifs right side up, upside down, uh, present in the bull tamer Italian study. The narrative of the raft of the Medusa allowed Jellicoe to bring these prior strands together in such a way that it would have been surprising if he had not taken it for his own. The trackless expanse of ocean that, that uh, trapped the dwindling band of, band of survivors made actual his catastrophic imaginings in the deluge. The visceral immediacy of battle with axe and knife of dismemberment and cannibalism readily mapped themselves onto the um, uh, the precedence in his Roman imaginings and reinforced the painting as counter-restoration statement. For Anger and Lawrence, the restoration required centering and consolidation on the level of art. For Jericot, the restoration meant dispersal, disintegration, and desperation, a continuation of warfare's violence by other means. For Anger and Lawrence, that consolidation lacked any human center. There was no triumphant anti-Napoleon, no hero or lawgiver, so each substituted a neo-feudal 
symbolic code in place of that absent figure. For Jellicoe, feudal symbols represented a standing insult to humanity. As he made abundantly clear in a lithograph of 1818, in which a crippled veteran of Napoleon's wars finds himself barred from the Louvre by a mercenary Swiss guard in his immaculate kit and uniform. The veteran's tiny combat medal avails him nothing and recedes into insignificance compared to the amputated leg, his non-symbolic mark of intrinsic merit. The raft survivors are Jericho's confrères, and among them the trappings of rank and order survive only as a soiled and discarded remnant at the edge of the listing, disintegrating craft. All that is left is the bare solidarity of stripped and abandoned souls left in their watery hell, or almost all. Jellicoe had not wasted his exposure to the classical monuments in Rome. Artistic models of the kind that Canova and Consalvi had restored to their former pride of place, he uses his command of the ideal male figure, splendidly evident in this oil study, to bestow heroic status on a singular culminating figure, the African prepared in this consummate technical and anatomical mastery. It's the agility of this figure the barest and most dispossessed of them all, waving from the pinnacle of the pyramidal cluster of bodies that succeeds in attracting the attention of the distant rescue ship. So the last shall be first and the first last. I can't resist including this still from a current French documentary film on the raft recreating as it does Jericot in the fever of painting, building his composition, as we know he did, from whole resolved figures put down over a barely inflected white ground. As if each single figure could not come to life unless it came to life whole. The fraught narrative moment he chose from the many that he had tried out in his preparatory studies is one of suspension between damnation and salvation as the ship is, the rescue ship, the Argus, is about to disappear over the horizon, leaving the desperate raft occupants in terrible suspension, not knowing if they had been saved or abandoned. But like the angel in Hagar's story in Naves, rescue will come. History, the text tells us that. But the painting excludes any certainty of that outcome. Jellicoe's raft gave contemporary photographer, pardon me for these flipping around, gave contemporary photographer Thomas Strutt the most magnetic subject of his series on the Louvre, a further sign of the grip exerted by the painting beyond the exigencies of its immediate time and place. In a strong sense, this lecture has been about religious art from start to finish and about the most profound human-centered theology, a theology of doubt and uncertainty beyond conventional doctrine and piety. Two expressions of this theology have come first at the beginning and at the end of this talk. As Jellicoe finds in the world a collective human condition like that of Hagar and Ishmael, not knowing when or if the angel will arrive. 
Thank you very much. <laughs> This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.